A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook right now if you sign up at audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium. Why not check out Queens of Jerusalem by Catherine Pangonis? And oh look, that's who we're talking to today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 238, Queens of Jerusalem with Catherine Pangonis. Last time, we talked about the differing personalities of Manuel Komnenos and his cousin Andronicus. Andronicus was a troublemaker, someone who refused to bow and scrape before the emperor, someone who was always looking to strike out on his own. After twice escaping from captivity, Andronicus somehow managed to regain Manuel's favour and was sent to be the governor of Cilicia. In this episode, we pick up his story and see it reach new heights of audaciousness. Our guide today is Catherine Pangonis, the author of the book Queens of Jerusalem. This excellent book explores the lives of women in power during the era of the Crusader States. Obviously, the literal Queens of Jerusalem take center stage, but Catherine also charts the deeds of women further afield not just those who held power in Antioch or Edessa, but the wives of the Muslim emirs they fought with. Among this fascinating cast of characters are several Byzantine princesses who were dispatched to the Holy Land by Manuel Komnenos. Catherine is a fellow Londoner who studied literature and history at Oxford University and UCL. Queens of Jerusalem is her first work of history, and she's now busy on her second book, which will take in the forgotten capitals of the Mediterranean, cities like Syracuse, Antioch, Ravenna, and Carthage. Keep an eye out for Storied Cities, the Forgotten Capitals of the Mediterranean, which will be published next year by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Queens of Jerusalem is already out in places like the UK and Australia, and will be published in the USA on the 1st of February 2022. If you'd like to listen to the book, then it is available on Audible, read by Catherine herself, and you can use my discount code if you'd like to sign up for Audible for the first time. I'll remind you of the code at the end of the episode. I think you'll find this interview particularly interesting. We usually don't have much information about the wives of medieval rulers, but the precarious nature of the Crusader states created a slightly different environment. One of the women we talk about before we get to Andronicus is Constance, the wife of first Raymond of Antioch and then Reynaud de Chatillon. And as you'll hear, her life is in many ways far more interesting than theirs. Now, here's the interview. 
Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hi, thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so tell, tell us a bit about your book, Queens of Jerusalem. Uh, when did you first get hooked on crusading history and uh, what made you want to write the book? Well, I studied the branch of the A-level syllabus in the UK that focuses on the Middle Ages and the Crusades. And I had an amazing teacher and I was just completely swept up in the drama of this story. Um, but one of the things that I noticed at the time was that we came across names of certain very interesting, powerful women, Melisande of Jerusalem, Alice of Antioch, Sibylla of Jerusalem. But the syllabus just didn't expand on what they'd done at all. And there was no opportunities to write on them. And when I asked my teacher for further reading on them, there was very little available. You know, there was a very, uh, you know, a seriously seminal essay by a historian called Hans Eberhard Meyer about Queen Melisande. But, there, but, you know, that was an academic text and there wasn't a lot that was available for the general reader. Um, but I sort of put that idea out of mind and went on to study other things. And then when I finished my master's, where I'd focused on sort of Byzantium and the Latin East, and the influence of Greek texts on medieval historiography, I sort of came back to it and realized there still wasn't a book about these amazing women who's ruled in the Crusader kingdoms. And I thought, well, now I'm in a position to do something about it. So that's where the journey started. Um, and in between that, I'd undertaken loads of trips to, to Turkey and to the Middle East, just out of passion for that region. And so, yeah, I was really, really keen to do this. That's great. And um, it's, a, it's a subject I find particularly interesting because of the episodes um, that we've dedicated on this podcast to the lives of Roman and Byzantine women. And obviously they are so often bypassed by all the sources. And so one of the things I tried to focus on was under what circumstances could women have more control over their lives, more agency, the obvious small exception to the rule is obviously people in the Byzantine royal family and because of the Byzantine political system every generation or, or two or three a situation would come up where an empress could actually rule and and um, take power and so there seems to be something of a parallel in the crusader states and um, perhaps the precarious nature of their existence added to that and that was an interesting theme in the book could you tell the listeners a little bit more about how these opportunities for women to to exercise power and, and maybe mention some of the women who who did exercise power in their own right. Yes, and I think it's a question that has a two-pronged answer because women at this time, we often think of a woman ruling as a complete exception that bucks the trend, but something that's becoming apparent across sort of medieval studies is that women ruling is less of an exception than we would think it's more that the sources are glossing over the roles they had and editing out their roles. And this is due to, you know, major trends in the sources being written by churchmen and also people, men who don't, I mean, with the exception, the notable exception of Anna Kamnina, um, sources are traditionally written by men and quite often churchmen who aren't particularly interested in focusing on the roles of women. But more and more work is being done now to unearth the roles women pay, played in governing and in commanding in the medieval period. So it's less of an exception than we would think. But you're certainly right. There are these in, in frontier states and areas of in going th and, and regimes and 
countries going through periods of intense instability, there are greater opportunities for women to rule. And this is exactly what's happening at times at the Byzantine court and also in the Latin East in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. It is a frontier region and there's intense instability and volatility, both politically and militarily during this period. Um, and the result of this is that life expectancy for a native born king in Jerusalem is mid twenties, whereas life expectancy for a native born king in England or France at this time is late 50s, early 60s. So male rulers are just not living as long. And then when you couple that with sort of the genetic chance that more daughters are being born than sons, and also that the sons are contracting diseases more frequently than the daughters, or certainly that's what we have on record. Um, the result is, is that women, aristocratic women are being propelled to positions of prominence and are able to wield power because as you know from the rest of this podcast, bloodline and legitimacy is incredibly important to dynastic security and so women who represent links to the original crusaders their daughters and granddaughters of Beaumont of Taranto, Raymond of Saint-Gilles, these men they're very important um, as political linchpins and so they are being they are able to step in to the power vacuum formed by a lack of male relatives uh, and also uh, crucially, Melisande of Jerusalem is educated by her father to rule. So she not only is the eldest of four daughters to a father who never has sons, she's very well she's very well positioned to rule the kingdom of Jerusalem, not only because she's been educated and primed for this role and has been sitting in on meetings of the Oak Cour since her adolescence, but in addition to this, she's half Armenian and half French. She's half native Christian and she's been born and raised in the kingdom of Jerusalem. So she's naturally a very a very wise choice as ruler because she represents the diversity of the region that she would have to rule over. There were many really interesting examples in the book um, of these different women who ruled power. Um, let's take one who's perhaps a little bit closer to the listeners of this podcast. Um, and that's Constance of Antioch, who whose life shows some of the, the possibilities for a woman to to take charge of a state, but also the obstacles in her way. Um, listeners will uh, know of her tangentially as the wife of first Raymond, uh, Raymond of Antioch, formerly Raymond of Poitiers, who we've dealt with a lot, and then Reno of Chatillon, who we've just been covering the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about Constance's life and, uh, and uh, <laughs> the perils and the possibilities she faced? Yeah, of course. So Constance is low key, one of my favourite women in the book, because she, in a very low key way, is one of the most successfully powerful women of the Latin East. Um, she's the daughter of, Con of Alice of Antioch, Melisande, who I've just mentioned, younger sister, who is married to Bohemond II of Antioch. So she is the granddaughter of Bohemond I of Antioch, who I think your listeners are very familiar with. He plays a major role and is a thorn in the side of the Byzantine Empire. Um, so she has this great pedigree coming from both the royal line of Jerusalem and the royal line of Antioch. And so she's a very important figure. So Constance first enters onto the stage as a pawn in the power struggle between her mother, Alice of Antioch, and her uncle, Folk of Jerusalem. So Alice, her mother, rebels three times trying to claim control of the city of Antioch for herself. And variously, she potentially is trying to disinherit Constance as well. But during Alice's third rebellion, she realises that she's on the brink of defeat when this handsome stranger arrives at the gates of Antioch. This is, at this time, Raymond of Poitiers, soon to be Raymond of Antioch. 
And he somehow sweet talks his way into the city, persuading Alice that he will marry her and this will strengthen her position. And together they will be able to rule Antioch. However, while Alice is off presumably making preparations for her wedding, maybe having a nice dress made, ordering a feast, whatever you might be doing at this time, Raymond, Raymond is secretly marrying her eight-year-old daughter from her previous marriage. So Alice discovers she's been stabbed in the back in this monumental way because in marrying Constance of Antioch, the child, she's eight years old, even though it's completely uncanonical, by the way, and they don't even have time to get a dispensation for it. So it's not technically a legal marriage, but this is overlooked. Alice has been completely disinherited because Alice did not have any blood claim to Antioch. She was the ruler of Antioch by marriage, to Beaumont II, who then died and left her a widow. And so at best, she was standing as regent for her daughter. But when her daughter is married to Raymond, her, this husband supersedes her mother in rank and in the right to rule as her regent. So suddenly Alice finds herself completely dispossessed of any claim to Antioch and exiled from the city. And she dies very shortly after. This leaves Constance eight years old, married to a man who I believe in his, is in his 30s at this time, maybe late 20s. Um, but in, in any case, this marriage prospers eventually. Um, and Constance has three children with Raymond. Then, as mentioned, Raymond is killed at the Battle of Inab following the, the complete failure of the Second Crusade, which I believe you've covered in an earlier episode. And so Raymond is killed in Inab and Constance is left a widow. And this is a period where she enjoys the power for the first time in her life because as a widow with three children, she's actually in quite a strong position because she has a blood claim to be the ruler of Antioch and she has a son and two daughters and she can rule as regent for her son if she chooses. However, this is definitely not the first choice of her male relatives. So her cousin, Baldwin III, is ruling in Jerusalem at this time and he would much prefer to see his, his cousin married to a capable military commander who can rebuff Aleppo for him, you know, keep the forces of Aleppo at bay. Antioch is a very important frontier territory. So the idea is that they would like to see her married very quickly. So she requests a suitor from Emperor Manuel from Byzantium, and he sends Caesar John Roger, an aristocrat from his court. And this is all quite a lengthy process. One must travel from Constantinople to Antioch, as seen with the Second Crusade. It's not a quick or easy journey. He arrives, presumably meets Constance, and she sends him packing straight away. This has bought her some time. It's annoyed the Byzantine emperor, but it has bought her some time. She gets to remain single for even longer. Then the rules for widows in the Latin Latinese at this time is quite strange. It's that a widow can be forced to marry a year after the death of her husband, but she must be given the choice between three suitors. And so then her cousin, the king of Jerusalem, offers her three suitors to choose from. She rejects them all. And this, again, buys her some time. And the issue of Constance's marriage is so pressing that they convene a special council to discuss who, who she should marry. And her aunt, Queen Melisande, is involved. Her other aunt, Hodiona of Tripoli, is involved and her cousin. And they all meet. And she's there as well to try and compel her to marry. And somehow, it's not recorded how, she manages to resist and to hold them off for a bit longer. And during this time, she plays a blinder by choosing her own husband from a completely unsuitable man who I think you've begun to introduce in the podcast, Reynard de Chatillon, who is this adventurer knight from France. Now, he's certainly not working class. He's certainly not a foot soldier. He's absolutely aristocratic, but he's in no way on, on, a, on level in terms of status with Constance or in terms of wealth. He is, I 
you know, comparatively landless. He certainly has no royal blood and he's a and he's a mercenary soldier in the pay of the king. So he's a completely rogue choice from Constance. And it's unclear why her cousin in Jerusalem accepts this marriage. But I think it must be in order to patch up what could become quite a nasty, quite a nasty scandal, because there's very clearly a love affair between them. The Chronicles attest to this, that Constance desired him greatly um, and that the entire, you know, the entire court of Antioch and Jerusalem is completely perplexed by her choice of husband. But nevertheless, she marries him. Um, And following this, she gives birth to his son. But then, of course, Reynald is captured and spends, I think, at least 13 years as in captivity, which again leaves Constance alone in Antioch. But by this point, her son is beginning to take power. But in between these marriages and these periods of regency and her husband and her son being captured, Constance enjoys quite a lot of power within the city of Antioch. And she does this by sort of quietly avoiding marriage and by putting things off and by buying more time for herself rather than entering into open rebellion. And it's this you know, playing the game of politics that allows her to actually succeed and have many years of independent rule in Antioch, which is what her mother never managed to achieve through open rebellion. So she's quite clever in this way and eventually manages to choose her own husband. Again, something none of her female relatives managed to pull off. So she's an interesting woman for sure. Yeah, a really interesting life. And I suppose it's that isolation that we kind of talked about where if she was in the middle of France, somebody would come eventually and knock on the door and say, we're going to force the issue. But by being out in Antioch, um, it's harder to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So having dealt with uh, several men (laughs) trying their luck across her life there, she gets uh, another um, interesting visitor in 1167. Um, In our last episode, we we talked all about Andronicus Komnenosen, his life, uh, Manuel's cousin, and uh, he was sent to Cilicia uh, to be its governor, um, but disappeared off to Antioch as well. Can you can you pick up the story for us there? Yes. Yeah, so as I'm sure you've covered in your last episode, Andronicus is this archetypal Byzantine villain. I mean, he embodies all the qualities that you would the qualities and vices that you'd expect of this he's incredibly charismatic he's incredibly smooth talking but he's also incredibly proud and he's a serial seducer and ends up having a rather nasty acarian fall towards the end of his life but no spoilers um but yes he arrives in antioch um following you know escaping scandal in constantinople where he's been He's earned Manuel's displeasure for being involved in various plots and, you know, not least of which seducing his own niece, a lady called Eudokia, a a princess of the Byzantine court. And so he arrives in Antioch with scandal on his heels, um, but is, you know, immediately welcomed into the court and spends some time there as an esteemed guest and visitor and by all accounts puts on quite a a showy display he's you know he sort of seems a bit like a peacock strutting around the city um the effect of this is that he causes one of the business uh, one of the antiochian princesses philippa to fall madly in love with him to the extent that she has an affair with him um he of course being andronicus Comnenus, abandons her this is something he does he likes to seduce princesses and then leaves them and philippa is apparently left completely desolate and, you know, her relatives attempt to patch up this major scandal by marrying her to a much older man whom she really doesn't seem to love. And apparently she dies of a broken heart within a year or two of this marriage. Meanwhile, Andronicus, you know, skips out of Antioch, 
um, clearly in exile, unwelcome there. And he goes to the court of Jerusalem, where, again, for reasons unknown, he's apparently welcomed with open arms, which stands as testimony to just how persuasive and mesmerizing his, you know, his personal qualities are. And not only does he manage to sweet talk his way into the court of Jerusalem, but he, they man he manages to persuade them to give him the lordship of Beirut, which is obviously a very, very valuable lordship at this time in the county of Tripoli. So off Andronicus goes to Beirut. And in addition to being given this important lordship, he also, it seems, gets permission to undertake a family visit to a niece of his living in the city of Acre, just to the south of Beirut in the north of modern day Israel. And they have a very, very interesting encounter. Yeah, so this is Theodora, another um, relative of Manuel's who's been sent to the Crusader states um, as part of Manuel's various marriage alliances. And her story and her interactions with Andronicus are one of the most interesting parts of your book. So tell us what happened next and tell us about Theodora's um, situation to start with. Yeah, of course. So Theodora, as you've mentioned, is a niece of Manuel's who's sent to Jerusalem to marry the king of Jerusalem. Um, and she goes when she's 12 years old and arrives in great splendor into the port of Tyre in 1158, bringing with her a dowry, a much needed dowry for the kingdom of Jerusalem of 100,000 gold hyperpera, in addition to an extra 10,000 to pay for the most lavish wedding the kingdom of Jerusalem has ever seen. So she's there to wed Melazon's eldest son, Baldwin III, who has just managed to claim power back from his mother after a rather gritty civil war and is so red and is ready to take a wife and consolidate his position, his power by marrying a Byzantine princess. Um, so, yeah, Theodora arrives and marries Baldwin III, who apparently hitherto has been a bit of a ladies man. He's been being quite promiscuous and all the rest of it. And apparently he is so moved by Theodora's beauty, even though she's only 12, that he becomes completely devoted to her and gives up all his tomcat ways and becomes, you know, the model husband. Um, and William of Tyre, our main source for the Crusader period, who never gives us descriptions of women and is never moved by female beauty, is particularly moved by Theodora's beauty. And he calls her an illustrious maiden of unusual beauty, both of form and feature, which is the most detail William gives about the appearance of any woman. So she's really, she's clearly, it's not just medieval convention. This is clearly a very beautiful and hypnotic woman like Andronicus, you know. Um, and Theodora, you know, she should have quite an easy life. She has a very good marriage contract. She's, there's no reason, she should be very safe from being repudiated or divorced because she's a Byzantine princess. So no king would want to anger Manuel by insulting a relative by putting her aside. She's also brought this very hefty dowry, which makes her very, very welcome when she arrives. And in addition to this, her marriage contract is very good. So it states that if it states that if, the, if, if her husband is to die, Theodora will be given the coastal city of Acre, which is an incredibly important trading port. Um, and this should give her financial security and status for life. Um, and so, you know, the, the real plan would be for Theodora to marry Baldwin, give him heirs. And then if she were to be widowed, which she likely would be, she would then live out her life in Acre, a very comfortable existence, but albeit in a, slightly in a gilded cage. However, things don't go to plan because Baldwin III dies before any heirs can be produced. Theodora is very young when they marry. And even if they consummate the relationship straight away, she may not be able to have children yet. And she's left a widow at the age of 17 when Baldwin III dies and is sent to Acre, where her life is very lonely. I mean, 
the King of Jerusalem has no incentive to allow Theodora to remarry because as long as she's at Acre unmarried, she's not really going to be commanding anything. You know, she hasn't made herself a political player at the court of Jerusalem. And there are two reasons for this. One is her extreme youth when she arrived, but also her husband, Baldwin III, has just come out of a really gruelling civil war with his mother, which saw him besieging his own mother in the Tower of David in Jerusalem um, and really damaged the reputation of the Crusader kingdom. So he's very clearly not going to want to enter into another power sharing relationship. And so he very much keeps Theodora in the role of consort and doesn't give her any political power. And so his successor, his brother Amalric, is, you know, likewise isn't going to want to give Theodora any power at all. So he puts her aside in Acre. And if Theodora remarries, then whoever she would marry would have control of Acre. Whereas if she remains a widow, well, then Amalric controls Acre in all but name. So he's he has no incentive to allow her to remarry. On top of this, you know, she was a child bride coming, probably not speaking the local language, probably speaking only Greek to the court of Jerusalem, and she would be very lonely in Acre. Um, with very little prospects and would be guarded very closely. So this visit from Andronicus in 1167 is probably one of the most exciting events of her life since her widowhood. Um, and when Andronicus arrives, despite the fact that she's 17 and he's in his mid-50s, and also the closeness of their blood relation, he is her own uncle, she falls madly in love with him. This is this is what seems to happen, or at least he falls madly in love with her and he persuades her to elope with him. And this isn't straightforward because, as we've talked about, it's not Theodora would be under close guard. They don't want her to elope with anybody and they've probably only allowed Andronicus to visit her because they think the chance of any romance happening here is so unlikely because he's so much older than her and they're related. But, you know, they've, they really missed a trick there because Andronicus does seduce her. Um, so they have to plot their escape very carefully. And Andronicus, so instead, in, leaves Acre, returns to Beirut, and instead invites Theodora to visit him in Beirut. And as she's making this journey from one city to another, he arranges an ambush to kidnap her, um, or to ostensibly kidnap her, but presumably it's with her consent because she's leaked her itinerary so they know where to take her or whatever. So what actually pushed them to run away together? Why not just have the affair in secret? Well, because Andronicus, I think, as has been made clear, wasn't very good at keeping secrets. So we're not sure how, but somehow Emperor Manuel heard of this affair. And, you know, Theodora, from her relatively sheltered existence, was probably wasn't the most practiced adulteress. And Andronicus clearly wasn't that bothered about being discovered. So somehow rumours got back to Constantinople that this affair was taking place. And this is really significant, as discussed. You know, Andronicus is committing quite a serious offence of incest again. Um, and in addition, he's dishonouring another of Manuel's nieces, which is one of the things that got him thrown out of Constantinople in the first place. So Manuel's response to this is to send a letter to the authorities in the Holy Land, demanding that Andronicus be apprehended and blinded for committing this offence. Um, however, the letter that's sent to Acre, that's sent to Acre, presumably to inform the constable of the city that the, you know, that their guest is dishonouring their, their their lady, this does not reach the constable's hands. It reaches Theodora's hands. She she 
finds this letter and then she warns her lover of what's about to happen and so it's probably this instant and the fact that the game is up and they're probably about to face punishment that causes them to come up with this daring escape attempt which causes them in turn to burn all their bridges with all the christian courts nearby so but you can imagine this the scandal that this would cause you know and you know a cousin of the byzantine emperor eloping with a former queen of jerusalem to form an incestuous union without permission of either the king of Jerusalem or the emperor of Byzantium, following his seduction of the princess Eudokia and princess Philippa of Antioch. So this this would cause a major scandal. And the result of this is that the couple realise there's nowhere in Christian lands that they can hide. There's no, they, they've, Andronicus has exhausted the hospitality he could enjoy at any of the courts of the Latin states and at the court of Constantinople. And even if he had friends in these cities, who would want to put themselves in the position of incurring the wrath of both Manuel Comnenus and King and King Amaric of Jerusalem, who would presumably be wanting to avenge you know, his brother's widow's dishonor. So instead, they elope to Nur ad-Din's court at Damascus. So you have a Byzantine prince eloping with the dowager queen of Jerusalem to the Islamic court of Damascus. It's a scandal and it's called the scandal of Christendom and the sources refer to Andronicus with this unbridled lewdness is the quote so it's this incredibly dramatic episode Um, and what's really what's really interesting about it is of course what spurred Theodora to form this relationship and we have to and or to consent to elope like this and we have to assume it's because She's she falls under Andronicus's hypnotic charm and also because, you know, she was looking forward at what her life would be. And it would just be to grow old in this gilded cage at Acre, not seeing anyone, no chance to remarry, no chance to have children. Um, And also probably quite culturally isolated as a Greek princess now living in this coastal city, pretty much just under guard without without friends or relatives around her. Um, And also, you know, we must remember that Andronicus would present this you know, would be a very sort of, would be a nostalgic person coming from home and he would speak her own language and would have cultural touch points with which to connect with her over. So, and clearly he's a very charming man. So there's that, but also he represents another chance at another another life and to, to have children. And she does, she has two children with him. Um, and what's remarkable from Andronicus's side is that he really does seem to be in love with Theodora. He's devoted to her. And it seems this is an impact Theodora has on all the men in her life, first Baldwin the third and then Andronicus, because Andronicus could have seduced her and left her. He's got no qualms about doing that, as we've seen in the, with the example of Eudokia and Philippa at Antioch. But instead, he goes to the, you know, he gives up the lordship of Beirut and the good favour of the king of Jerusalem in order to elope with her. So they materially, both of them give up two of the most valuable cities on you know on the on the coast of the Holy Land in order to be with each other and they elope to Muslim territory which obviously puts them at great risk it's a very daring ploy and on top of this Andronicus remains with her um, for all of her life you know he never abandons her and then of course and so you know they spend years together just moving from place to place within Islamic territory and the sources say that Theodora became his companion and fellow wanderer um, but, you know, the true test of Andronicus's affection is when Emperor Manuel actually manages to abduct Theodora and the two children she's born Andronicus. And instead of sort of cutting his losses and going to find another princess to seduce or whatever he might have done, Andronicus finally stopped running from Manuel Comenius. He's been on the run for nearly a decade at this point. But when Theodora is abducted, 
he then goes to Manuel and finally, you know, prostrates himself before him and begs forgiveness and pays this really dramatic act of homage to the emperor. So, and so this demonstrates his complete love for Theodora and the fact that he wants to be with her and guard her interests as well. So it's a remarkable story on many levels, not only for the personality of those involved, but also just for the fact that it's, you know, two Christian lovers from the two most prominent Christian kingdoms in the East eloping to Nur ad-Din's court. And it's also interesting from the perspective that it shows that Nur ad-Din clearly welcomed them. They were given hospitality in Damascus and Baghdad and Haran, and eventually they're given a castle to live in near Kolonir by a Turkish emir. So that's interesting from a, a perspective of Islamic and Christian relations and diplomacy at this time as well. There's so many interesting threads, and I, I would definitely recommend people read the book to find out more. Um, you also see a sense of um, people seeing the value in a, in a high-ranking Byzantine exile. You never know when he, you're going to be able to send him back to claim the throne, and he will owe you a big favor. So everyone, quite. you know, yeah, from the Crusader states to the Muslim world is like, well, he could be useful. But, but it is so interesting that f- for neither of them, it was the obvious move that she could, I mean, yes, she had this opportunity for, you know, maybe real romance, maybe real love, children and so on. But it was, it was leaving comfort behind. It was leaving safety behind. And then ditto him. He could have stayed in the Crusader States. That's a handy um, lordship to have. And he's in a good position and so on. And he's abandoning that. Um, And some, I mean, something else you, we talked about off air that I think listeners would find interesting is obviously there is this scandal element of, um, you know, abandoning your position and abandoning, you know, taking a, a widow off the uh, away from where she's meant to be and so on. But um, it, it's not just the, we when we think of scandal we think of like a modern scandal like oh a politician's caught having sex but but you had a a a psychological framework for for modern listeners and readers to sort of understand why a widow being taken from her position would be seen as such a negative thing by say Manuel Comunos Um, yeah of course I mean so one of the most interesting things about the foreign policy between the Byzantine Empire and the Latin states at this time is this this real policy of intermarriage and when we think about you know marriage in a modern sense of the world is something quite different to marriage in the medieval what it meant in medieval times and in this period it's really you know it's really more akin to an exchange of hostages than to what we would what we would equate with modern marriage this is about sending a represent you know this is about trusting each other with your heirs and exchanging them so and it's and it goes both ways because the latin states are sending women to byzantium we see maria maria of antioch one of constance's other daughter the one who is not seduced by andronicus will eventually go to wed manuel and become the empress of byzantium and at the same time manuel is sending his nieces to wed the kings of jerusalem and this is this is not just about oh let's be a big happy family this is this is very this is very clearly a hostage exchange in some ways and so the abduction of a princess who has been sent to the latin kingdom by a byzantine by by, an, by a byzantine prince is a major diplomatic instance between jerusalem and constantinople so yeah it's got it's it's got many many reasons why this is scandalous yeah 
I just think that's a really, a really interesting way for the, for the listeners to realize why this was such a big deal and why it was such a betrayal by Andronicus. Cause it's like, he's gone into the enemy, you know, he's gone and taken hostages. You've got during a siege and taken them away. And he's sending a message that maybe Byzantine princesses can't be trusted to stay and, you know, stay loyal yeah. to their new Latin husbands. So yeah, it's a big deal. Which is very significant because at more or less the same time that Theodora is eloping with Andronicus, the new king of Jerusalem, Amalric, Baldwin III's brother, so Theodora's brother-in-law, has just married the next Byzantine princess to be sent to Jerusalem, which is Maria Comnena, who is going to have, who, who will go on to have a major impact on the politics of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem and will play the role of kingmaker following the loss of Jerusalem and, you know, do everything she can to put her daughter Isabella on the throne. So disgracing one Byzantine princess at this crucial moment when another has just become the Queen of Jerusalem is really, really, um, yeah, I can't think of the word. It's really significant, <laughs> really significant. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting and, and shocking story. But I think we will have to um, close the interview there and encourage people to go and read the book to find out more and to find out about the other women of Utremia and the other queens of Jerusalem um, whose stories are equally fascinating. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell uh, listeners in America when the book will be available to them? Yes, thanks so much for having me. Um, and the book is being launched in America on the 1st of February. So it'll be available in all major outlets. Fantastic. So do go and buy the book. And uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So do check out Queens of Jerusalem to experience this fascinating and underappreciated part of Crusader history. And if you'd like to listen rather than read, then why not give Audible's service a try? Audible has hundreds of thousands of books available and a growing collection of original podcasts. If you sign up at audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium, you can enjoy a 30-day free trial where you get a free book that you can keep forever. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.